Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of that skill. In these interviews I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdoms each guest shares, and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. Welcome to the next guest on the Courage to Lead interview series, Cherie Johnson, the author of a wonderful book called The Thriving Doctor. Shari is a registered psychologist and executive coach. Integrating mindfulness into her coaching practice enables her clients to benefit from a growth mindset and improve their performance and their well-being. In this interview, you will learn that Cherie's first exposure to teamwork came from her parents. They taught her with the right support and the right encouragement and an overwhelming sense of belief in our abilities to, to succeed from the people around us, we can achieve almost anything. Cherie espouses that as humans, we are not islands and we are meant to support each other. Education is one of the keys of life. And there is really no difference between any human being on the planet except opportunity. And the main opportunity that we, we need to succeed is education. In her book and her business, it's all about helping doctors to thrive so that they can be a grounded source of comfort at the best and the worst of times when we need their help. Cherie has found that doctors who are empathetic and well provide better care for the health outcomes of their patients. Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series today, um, Cherie Johnson, um, author of a wonderful book called The Thriving Doctor. Let's get straight into it, Cherie. Um, every guest on the show uh, is asked two questions. So the first question is, what was your first ever true experience of leadership? And it can be as a five-year-old or it can be yesterday or anywhere in between. And, and then I'll ask you to clarify why, please. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a really hard question to ask because I, th I think I've been lucky to have so many examples, but uh, I really feel like it's my mum and dad that I want to talk about mostly. I, I had a very blessed childhood and lots of opportunities. You know, I played a lot of tennis and netball, so there were also lots of, um, I guess, coaching examples of early leadership. But um, famous story in our family is when I fell off my bike as a five-year-old and refused to ride it for... Mm. A long while until mum and dad basically got me out in the yard and stood at both ends and I cried and said I can't and they just continually pushed me up and down on the bike so um, I think that is a really powerful example in my life it still resonates my parents certainly talk about it I was the oldest child I think it was probably a parenting lesson for them as well in just insisting that I could and uh, and providing the support for me to be able to do that so I don't really know how long we were out in the yard but basically I was riding 20 or 30 meters up and down between them as a seven-year-old until my confidence was restored essentially in in the bike riding um, stakes so you know I think that that resonates still in my life you know nearly 50 years 
on um, because of the power of it, that with the right support and the right encouragement and, and the kind of that really essential belief that they believed in me and whatever um, protestations or um, objections I put forward, they still believed in me and we were going to do it. So I think very early lesson in teamwork, not recognised then, of course, at the time I just thought they were um, mean and bossy and <laughs> <laughs> and putting too much pressure on. Um, but, you know, paid huge di- dividends. So Yeah. It's interesting uh, you go there because I've, you know, I've read some of your book already, The, the Thriving Doctor, and, and I'd have to say an overarching theme is support. Mm. Um, and, and I find, uh, and I love where you've gone with it because I think um, uh, my per- own personal belief is we can pretty well do anything if we've supported. If we're not supported, we we crash and burn. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that there, so I, I love that answer. The, with the right support, the right encouragement, and the and the uh, outstanding belief that they had in you that you could do it. So mm-hmm. and that's um that's two years later. That's pretty good. Like as a seven year old, most seven year olds can ride. So yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd held out for a long time, Alan. I'm pretty determined <laughs> to carry that. <laughs> good story. All right, so the second question that I asked before we really get into who Cherie Johnson is, is um, what's something about Cherie Johnson that no one knows? Yeah, even harder question, like, you know, I was thinking, do I give some trite answer like I don't drink coffee or, you know, Mm. some deep, dark secret? And I guess I'm still not really sure what the the right answer to that question is. It doesn't feel like an icebreaker, Ellen. It feels like a deep dive. Um, But I think, you know, probably one of the things that's uh, been useful to me in, in my in the longer term is that I've had to learn to be able to be still and and do nothing and you know I think people see me now as a meditation teacher and a person that spends a lot of time listening to other people and you know holding space and and encouraging people to pause and be present and you know those things are very you know bread and butter in my work now but it's but it's not something I always did naturally I'm an extroverted person I like being with people I'm very very busy you know, I've had people all through my life tell me to um, stop trying to put so much in and I definitely would be described in the, in perhaps older psychology language as a, as a type A personality, mm. striving, looking to achieve, uh, you know, feeding off other people's recognition, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I, I had to learn to be still and be quiet and had to learn the value of, of stillness and uh um, not filling up every single moment with some achievement-focused activity. So, I mean, that's if, if like, this is the first time you and I have actually spoken mm-hmm. face-to-face um, and I, I actually hear how you talk and hear how you, the presence you have. Um, and I would have to say that's a great descriptor, stillness mm-hmm. and calmness. Mm-hmm. So when, and we'll get into it, we'll obviously get into it, um, but... What made you change from like a type A striving for the recognition of others, um, very busy, like an extrovert, um, what made you change? Mm. I don't think I've changed. I think I've still got all of that, but I hope I've added some more tools to the kit. So, um, you know, there's more intentional active choice. And I don't know if I can point to kind of one thing. I think it's developmental, I guess, that I... um, have been able in my earlier 
life to draw on my strengths or that my strengths have kind of naturally got me places that I've wanted to go. Um, but over time, I, uh, hope, I hope that I've, you know, taken the feedback that people have offered me and observed, you know, mentors and other people that they do things differently and, you know, learned that diversity of people in teams has value. And so I think that's the same in ourselves, that uh, one recipe, one set of skills isn't necessarily enough for all the situations that life presents to us. Well, for someone that you thought you couldn't answer the question to, <laughs> I think you've um, I think you've taken us to a whole new level of uh, expectations for the next few guests on the show. <laughs> so that, that's, that's the, the last guest, uh, um, was that uh, Robert Anderson actually? One, uh, someone, oh, another yes, author, Robert, another, yes. yeah, another author from Kelly Irving's crew. Um, He's two answers were probably some of the best I've ever heard for the, those two questions as well. So well done. I, I quite And that really sets us up for your interview now. So, um, yeah, why why I wanted you on the show was, uh, you know, the, the Courage to Lead interview series is about identifying people who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where they can do their absolute best or thrive. Um, so yeah, your your book's called The Thriving Doctor. Um, so yeah, there's obviously for you to have a space in the world of medicine, you know, with, with what you're doing. You've been a bestseller. You've got you've uh, I think I saw last year um, Small Business of the Year award uh, award nominee. Um, uh, I don't know whether you won it or not, but uh, no, no, I was nominated for in the category the book uh, Australian book I can't actually remember the abbas australian oh, yeah. book business book awards australian business book awards okay um, all right i think i got a special mention uh, alan i didn't yeah. win <laughs> <laughs> but i mean yeah you've got to be there there to get those nominations so it just it's i'm really curious um about your story so let's get into it i'm in your hands um what where does the story start and um like it's obviously the five-year-old and the seven-year-old, uh, but there's uh, where does it start? Where you're you're des describe yourself as an, an extrovert, type A, striving person personality, feeding off the recognition of others, which is a you know is a really interesting um, condition to have. Um, and then you learn to add tools to your kit. So there's obviously little there's things that happen along the way. That you mm. that set, trigger to your own self awareness that something's got to change. <laughs> so let's go. Yeah. I'm in your hands. So where to start? The obvious obvious start is um, you know my family, and I really am just we we are not born with the same opportunity. Uh, you know I think there's such an amount of random luck in that very beginning and I, I guess I was lucky I was born, born into a very stable community stable family and a stable kind of time in history in some ways mm. um, and uh, you know until recent times have not been exposed to global events that have caused grief and you know no depressions no wars those kinds of things so I think I was I started off very lucky uh, very stable home life um, parents who were very young you know having been a parent now myself starting my parenting journey 10 or 11 years on from when they did I think it's quite extraordinary how these young people did such a good job at establishing 
our family and and in large part that's because they also came from um, supportive families and supportive communities so your comment earlier about the overarching theme about support I think it's definitely a theme in my life we are not islands uh, we are social creatures that are born to be um, connected and interconnected and and we just do much better when we're in spaces where we have trusted other people around us. So I think I had a you know healthy, easy childhood, lots of sport, part-time jobs. Um, the eldest of four kids uh, was given responsibility. We lived in a time where we could move around easily. I used to ride my bike to my friends' houses without you know anybody wondering if that was safe or okay. So uh, all of that sets you up. And I think the other thing that I would really give a want to give a lot of credit to in those early years is education and again I don't think that everybody has that same good fortune but I really I, I think of education as the keys to life I think mm. once you once you know how to find information where to find information once you have a, a confidence in yourself about if you don't have the resources you'll know how to find them and where to find them mm. um, really there probably isn't much that we can't achieve not necessarily by ourselves but so I think I got those very strong messages in my childhood that you can do and be whatever it is you want to do and be um, I don't feel like there was any gender limitations put on me I think my mum and dad had pretty uh, traditional gender roles you know dad worked and mum ran the home and the family definitely supported him in his work they were farmers um, you know there was definitely an attitude of you can do and be what you want to do and be. All we expect is that you give it your best shot. So there was a an expectation that you try, that you put in, and that you uh, have a have a good crack, have a go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think those things: support, belief, safe community. Um, uh, you know, and and this thing of trying. There was never a, you know. You, there was no punishment for getting it wrong or not not reaching the goal. It probably yeah. was some frowning or scorning if you didn't try. Yep, I like that. You're um you're giving at a very personal family level, but all of those things transfer across to adult leadership roles or adult um, work roles. So yeah, very very good. Okay, so where 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 did you grow up? Uh, up in Kyabram in the Goulburn Valley, the, near the river in Victoria. Um, Kyabram's not on the river, so, uh, you know, swimming in, to that extent wasn't the same as if I'd lived in Echuca, but certainly, uh, you know, my husband Tim used to scorn <laughs> when we'd go to Kyabram about how flat it was because yeah. he'd come from the hills of Gippsland in southern Victoria, which is where we live now. Um but really, I just think it was pretty idyllic childhood. There was um, peace, love and harmony most of the time, shall we say. Yeah. As I said, uh, my parents were dairy farmers and then uh, orchardists and, uh, you know, we, we, I worked in the, in the shed packing fruit and then in the supermarket and, you know, just feels, it feels like a pretty ordinary childhood in some ways. But as I said already, I feel really, you know, blessed and lucky for the opportunities it provided me. But they're in those occupations like dairy farmer, that there's such a routine and discipline mm. to do that, like that's three sixty-five days a year, mm. isn't it really? So mm. that's and you're the oldest kid, so you're obviously exposed to that. 
And all... Yeah, although I'm not an animal person, Ellen, and I think of the four kids, I'm the only one who's never milked a cow, so <laughs> I think <laughs> okay. I managed to avoid that. I'm definitely a town kid rather than a, a farm kid. Yeah. For, yeah. And orchardings really are work too. There's, yeah, there's, very. There's a lot of loads. So mm. uh, interesting. So I'm in your hands. What? Where? Where does? So you you've talked about your childhood. You've talked yeah. about um, the. And I really um, relate to what you say. It, it is it is a lucky dip where we're born, really, mm-hmm. um, uh, and how and how we're raised. Um, so what what's your you know you you've talked about that part of it where. Um, you're a town kid. You're you're on the farm. What? Where does where? Did, and you talked about part-time jobs. So what? What did your working life look like? Uh, well, the first job I probably ever really had, well, obviously I had a job of looking after my younger siblings. But then I was um, uh, packing fruit on the on the orchard. I uh, was a netball umpire. I was thinking about that. The, the first team I coached, I was in year nine, coaching the little girls to play okay. netball. Uh, yeah, so that, that's uh, my my kids now have done that too. I think that's been a really um, unique experience of my teenage years. Um, I was a netball umpire, and I think again, watching my kids learn to umpire, that's that's I think that's really precious experience because you learn to use your voice. You know, you're suddenly now having to be in charge and to move from all those childhood lessons of taking turns and um, not talking over people and not interrupting and all those kinds of things to now actually having using a bigger voice and directing yeah. people and 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 correcting and you know that's that's um important set of skills i think to have learned and then i um moved on when i moved to university i moved to melbourne and you know worked in hospitality as mo- many uni kids do uh still umpiring netball i remember umpiring uh, a mixed netball game which was just new then we'd never had boys playing netball and the boys played netball like they were playing basketball or football (laughs) and um, having to send this young man off and I you know I was a skinny kid I was probably 19 probably weighed about 48 kilos I was a skinny little whip of a thing Mm -hmm. and um, sending this fellow off who was probably in his mid-20s for (laughs) um, arguing with the umpire And, you know, just feeling that, you know, feeling terrified, uh, but also feeling the power of that. I think that it's probably I haven't really thought about it until more recent years, but those uh, fine lines that you work in, that you start to find in leadership around exerting your power and withholding that energy that's in power and learning how to collaborate and influence through soft ways as well as kind of more bossy ways and I you know I was the oldest child I grew up being told that I was bossy by my siblings and I'm sure I was Um, so you know and it's not a word we use now particularly when we think about you know the gender biases in leadership often it's not really a part of the lexicon so much now Um, but definitely I you know I would want to own that that I had this journey between from being bossy and learning how to how to manage that and how to think about um how to use our voice and what is it that we're really trying to do and and learning that support and partnership kind of go hand in hand you don't get people's support if you just want to you know boss them about in that kind of 
old-fashioned autocratic way so then so when I was at uni I um was the treasurer of the residents association at the college I lived in and you know this the psychologist in me says I was just kind of being true to type Alan you know I'd Mm. learned the skills of being the boss of probably my siblings first and foremost and I just kept finding myself in these roles of of um making decisions and being a part of it I never felt frightened like some people do of um having to have an opinion or make a decision. I think some people don't like being on, you know, volunteer committees and committees in sports clubs and things like that because they don't want to be having the responsibility of the decision. And I guess I grew up being told that I was responsible and, you know, it was expected of me as the eldest child or or because of my personality, probably both, um, yeah. that I would be responsible. And so I just, it's sort of true to type in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the early script I learned. So you're, you, the, the first uni course you did was psychology? Yeah, behavioural science at La Trobe University. Um, always at that time, I'm not sure if it's so alive now, but uh, the, there was a question, is psychology an art or a science? And psychology as a course sat in many universities as an arts course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at La Trobe at that time and still now it was um, behavioural science, had a very strong science bent, yeah. which I loved and still love. You know, I think that this uh, humans do ordin- ordinarily do anecdotal experiments all of the time in their own lives, as we should. Um, and uh, it's really important to have rigorous uh, science that's un- understanding behaviour as well. Those t- those two things go hand in hand. The challenge is that science is often lagging um, our own what we know to be true in our own lives. It takes a long time to prove something in research. Yes, yeah. Especially well, something as nebulous as as psychology can be. Yes, yes. So, so you're the treasurer of your resident accommodation at uni, um, and. And, uh, and you're kind of highlighting your your core response, probably personality that you're you're you actually thrive in making decisions. Um, you don't shy away from it, um, and you like being responsible. So where where to from there? We're like a psych degree is what three or four years, isn't it? Yeah, so, three years, and then a fourth year in applied adult psychology is what I did. Okay. Uh, and that was at Swinburne University, and I loved that. I you know that. When I finished my degree, the very strong sense that I had was, well, that's all very nice. I've got this undergraduate degree, but what do I do now? And I remember feeling very excited with my, um, you know, getting across the line and finishing, being awarded the the degree, but also quite confused about what happens next because to become a psychologist was another three years then uh, of and most people now will do it their masters, but then we could still do two years intern or effectively an internship. Yeah. Um, so I did the fourth year, and I worked for uh, about eighteen months in uh, for the Victorian government in child protection, which was an incredible learning curve. Uh, you know, truly the green country kid um, meeting the reality of the world. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I worked in Frankston, uh, Dandenong and uh, in in um, Smith Street in Fitzroy, all all areas at that time of, um, you know, certainly large populations of uh, under-resourced people, shall yeah, we say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I was 
you know, scared a lot of the time. Yeah, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, but also, again, had some terrific people around me, great mentors who really um, understood that I had a lot to learn and didn't really ever, um, I guess, make me feel bad for that. But I had applied for over 30 jobs coming out of university. It was at the time of Paul Keating's um, recession we have to have. Yeah, yeah. And it was actually much harder to get a professional job than I thought ever thought it was going to be while I was at university. So I didn't really ever intend to be in child protection. Yeah. Uh, but, again, it's sort of one of those accidental gifts that keep on giving through your life. I have much better perspective of, of the real world, uh, a yeah. much deeper, broader understanding of what happens for people in the world. And, and I, I think probably really cemented that notion that, I carry with me of not being born with the same opportunity. Very much so. Yeah, you would say it. Yeah, I like that you're very, um, I love the kind way you talked about probably disadvantaged suburbs all over Australia or all over the world, um, under-resourced people. That's a very mm -hmm. kind way of saying it. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I think, uh, you know, that's it. To me, that's the most accurate description. You know, there's no, actually, no difference between me. And any of those people, except really opportunity. Mm. Very much so. Okay. So how long were you at um, in child protection? About four years. I went overseas for twelve months in the middle of of that. Uh, I don't know what the actual stats are, but the, the turnover in child protection in Victoria then was, you know, through the roof, really high. People didn't stay. We still had a dual track system where people could come into child protection through the police, engagement with the police or through engagement um, with us. Um, thankfully, I didn't do a lot of the very first visits. I was in the team that started from sort of two weeks in when people were established to need ongoing support or court action. So yeah. I, I wasn't involved in the um, the kind of dawn raids with police at the door sort of stuff that mm. was happening at that time. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, went over, I worked for 18 months or so, then I went overseas for 12 months, and I think people probably didn't expect that I would come back to child protection, but I came back for a couple more years, and then I um, moved out to the country to Gippsland to Bensdale, and I said then that I wouldn't, uh, to my um, future husband, Tim, that I wasn't coming to the country uh, if I was going to be in that frontline kind of role. I just yeah. couldn't. Yeah. imagine how I could have a happy life like that. Yeah, yeah. But I, I came ultimately to Bansdale as the team leader, so I stayed in the office most of the time but was working with um, the other the other people who were working as child protection yeah. workers uh, for a little while, about I think it was probably 12 months or so, and then uh, got myself into a welfare organisation, Uniting Care organisation, and worked as a family therapist for a number of years. Okay. It's interesting... Um... Like, you know, my background, I am a police, a career police officer for 40 years, but I, just, I recently interviewed someone else um, uh, that had, has a similar story. Like, they they ended up in a, a job, they were a lawyer, um, they ended up as a Crown Prosecutor, and because they were a young female, they got all the child sexual assault matters, and mm -hmm. they virtually had word for word the answer you just said. I can't see myself doing this forever. This is going to hurt me. Um, mm -hmm. But not. But what I find interesting about your answer and and her answer, not everyone has the self awareness to get out. Mm. They stay in and get hurt. Mm. <laughs> um, what What made you? What made you confident enough that, like you're already a team leader, so you were obviously 
uh, well regarded. You obviously had you know, it had some skills that people around you wanted you to do more, uh, which would you would think feed into that personality that you said you had, seeking the recognition of others. Um, what made you self-aware enough to get out? Mm. Uh, look, I probably wasn't as altruistic and lovely as you're making it sound, Alan. I mean, I was 25, so yeah. I was young. Um, I wasn't fully qualified yet as a psychologist, and there wasn't the opportunity in the department at that in that particular role. Uh, we could have probably found a way to make that happen, but it wasn't immediately obvious. The the family therapy job was I was going to be supervised by a psychologist and could and could finish my registration okay, training. Yeah, so that yeah. was pretty important at the yeah. time. Um, you know, I, I didn't see my future at that time in in just managing. I wanted to be working with the people. I wanted mm. to learn how to be a psychologist sitting with a person that had a problem, whatever the problem was, and helping them find a way through that. Um, I always had this interest in how work affected people and I think the job uh, in the uniting the uniting care job at the time allowed a little bit more flexibility a bit more freedom so for instance I would say to the organization people go off and do all this training they come back and they benefit from it but we're not actually teaching each other we're not telling each other what we're learning so you know sort of created a side gig for myself (laughs) inside the organization where I could um, coordinate some of that so people would come together and and tell each other what they'd learn at the professional development they'd gone to and I think it was more about it was it was probably in large part ambition in terms of getting my registration sorted out and um, having a bit more uh, say in what I was doing and how I was doing it than I could ever have in the department. And, you know, even though you're saying people didn't have awareness to get out, that's true. People did stay do and still do stay in those jobs, I think often for really beautiful reasons. You know, they they want to contribute to the community. They want to help these kids who are in families that aren't, aren't parenting very well. They want to support the parents to do better by their kids. So people stay in those jobs for very, you know, kind-hearted yes, reasons yeah, often. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and perhaps at that part of my life, perhaps I wasn't kind-hearted enough, I'm not sure. <laughs> but certainly, and certainly there were, not that I was thinking about having children myself at that stage, but there certainly were uh, women who were working in the department at the time and some men, mostly women, but some men who had small children and then were dealing with the, the families that we were working with. And I really didn't know how they did that. I really yeah. couldn't imagine um having my own small kids and having this as my work as well with families that were struggling in the, some of the ways that they were. And, you know, there was a lot of violence and conflict in some of those families. I think I just probably got out for selfish reasons, really. Uh, I think you're, I think you're being very hard on yourself. Um, I, I like, like, it sounds like the number one reason was, well, you needed to be qualified as a psychologist. Um, so, and uh, United Care gave you that opportunity, but you keep on coming back to it in your answers. Um, you couldn't see yourself doing it forever. So I mm. think that I think that's pretty gutsy because, um, like, as again, I, I'm I come from a policing background and and I did a lot of work with people in the homeless sector, um, and all of us do it because we want to make a difference in someone's lives. Mm. 
and but sometimes we do that at the cost of ourselves so i kind of like that you are you you kind of chose a direction where you could offer support at a more holistic level mm. which is pretty gutsy mm. um uh, because uh it's um and that's that's what i love about these interviews it's, it's you kind of made the decision as a 25 year old before you were married mm. before you had kids um that i'm going to go a different path which is pretty good mm. so let's let's go so you're in the uniting care um you've set up this um uh new kind of um group where you people actually communicate and share what they've learned in their development um opportunities how did that grow and and where do you go from there is mm. you know so we moved back to the city to a, a sister organisation, to a different Uniting Church organisation. Um, well, Tim and I got married. Um, he changed jobs. So, you know, a whole lot of things that happen in your 20s. Um, and then uh, I – so I, we went back to out, out to Epping, which is in the north of um, Melbourne, to work with uh, another Uniting Care agency as the um, the manager of their youth and family services. So I had about 28 – 30 staff there that I was responsible for. It was an outpost office of the main office in Collingwood. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so many challenges. I, I think now, I'd like to think now that I might have done some things differently there in terms of my own education about leadership. I think mm-hmm. I was trying my hardest for what I knew then, and hindsight's yeah. a beautiful thing, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Um, uh, uh, but I, you know, and I, th- I think overall I did a good job there. I think I could have done a better job with, uh, with the things that I know now. I would have loved to have had a coach that would have been fantastic. <laughs> yeah. um, but and and you know, again, just to be kind of, I suppose, a bit a bit lighter or fairer on on history for myself. We, we were doing really hard work. You know, we're working with homeless young people, working with people who were suicide, families that had no resources, um, you know, kids that were being kicked out of school repeatedly from all the neighbourhood schools. Um, you know, it's it's tough. It's a tough gig tough in gig, welfare, yeah. 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 As, as you know. Uh, again, I feel just incredibly grateful these days for the opportunity to have done that work and met some extraordinary people. And I worked with... Um, a woman there, Sue Fraser, who was an advocate, financial counsellor, and was advocating uh, against gambling and, you know, for hardship in the in the utilities sector, and you know, an extraordinary mentor for me. It always seems a bit funny to think of the 28 year old me being the boss of yeah, yeah. <laughs> these amazing people, and I th- I think that is um, you know a big learning curve for young adults. You know, they go into the workforce there ambitious they've got heaps of energy um, they want to apply all these amazing things they've learned at university or their previous job or whatever um, and also they find themselves responsible for people with much more experience than them and you know we're asking a lot of these young ambitious upcoming professionals I think across industry um, so I think the world has developed in lots of good ways there around uh, you know offering coaching and and um, l- m- more effective leadership training. I think we've still got a long way to go. There's some great models around. I think the Navy do a super job in their coaching program and, um, you know, we just know a lot, don't we? It's ever-evolving. We know a lot oh, more yeah. than we used to yeah. know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it does beg the question, what are we doing now that we, 
we'll say in 20 years could have done that better. But anyway, I had some terrific um, opportunities there. I like where you went with that though too. You know, the common theme is, and I think, you know, all leaders, the ones that I seem to have on this show anyway, um, that that kind of have the attributes that I want to highlight, leadership's an evolving thing. Um, and and only that self-awareness that, you know, my 28-year-old self did the best that I knew how to in um, in Epping in North Melbourne, but I wished I'd had a coach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wished I'd known what I know now and maybe my staff and me would have had an easier time. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. big question. I mean, that's very – do you want to give an example? Um, and this – because I find this is really, uh, really yeah. insightful. Do you want to give an example – where you did something as twenty-eight-year-old self mm. that you that you wouldn't have done now. It would have yeah, done a different I, way. I, I, it's hard, you know. Memory doesn't serve well, but I can remember one um, one uh, staff person who I think was, you know, doing their best work, but the people around them didn't think that they were up to the job. And I really advocated for that person and kept them on and tried to provide extra support and so on to keep get that person get that person's skills up. Um, and ultimately they did leave, not for 12 months or so, and they weren't doing anything toxic in terms of bullying other staff or anything like that. But, but I, you know, I often think of that person now and wonder if I served them well, if, it, if I was giving, you know, feedback that they could actually really use. I think I probably was too gentle or too, you know, I, I love, there's a couple of, I love Brene Brown says clear is kind, and I really love that. Um, atmosphere of trying to create circumstances where you can speak freely and clearly, you know, sticking with the issue, seeking what are the parts I'm missing, what don't I understand here. Um, There's a great program from um, Gervais Bush from Canada called uh, uh, Clear Leadership, which is really around um, effective, very effective communication where we acknowledge that in the absence of information, I'm making up a story. Yeah. And, you know, can, can we? Can you tell me what story you're, what's your story? And let me tell you what I'm, and let's find the parts that we don't understand together. Yeah. yeah. I think that, um, you know, I could have, I think I probably did more placating and smoothing over and, you know, than actually being curious and challenging what was really going on. Yeah. I had, um, Someone I was with the other recently, and they they were self um, aware enough to say that they were a nurturer, mm-hmm. uh, and not but not in their nurturing way. And this is how they started anyway. They, they were a nurturer, and they but they weren't direct enough to say exactly where you're going with it, really. So mm-hmm. yeah, so mm-hmm. no, but I I like so what what happened what happened um, to make you where you went from, um, what did you call yourself? You were too gentle, you said. Um, what made you change? When did the change happen? Uh, hmm. um, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that, you know, after that job, I went on maternity leave for a number of years and had three kids. Yeah. Uh, so I think that probably when I came back into the workforce, I just had so much more life experience. I think that's probably the main thing that changed. Um, 
Yeah. You want think... to, do you want to talk about that? Um, I mean, I know you're going to go to your next uh, kind of work situation. So you, if, if you went on maternity leave and you had three kids, it sounds like you had a bit of a break. I did. I had, um, yeah. you know, 10 years really. I did wow. a, num- okay. a number of projects for people, wrote some reports, you know, did some bits and pieces of work through that time. I when I came, when it came the time after our son was born to come back to work, uh, at that time, still, you know, work was pretty inflexible in those days. There wasn't a lot of room for people to think about working from home or part-time work. Uh, I thought that I might be able to come back to work for three or four days. That really wasn't an option in that yeah. role. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't willing to come back full-time mm. uh, once I started having kids. So so and you know Tim had good work we didn't need the money in the same way yeah so uh, yeah again more privilege I'm very aware of the privilege that 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 part of my story has so um yeah I think that parenting is an extraordinary teacher I mean anybody that um thinks that a, a woman who's been at home with small children for several years doesn't have any skills to offer I think uh, is um mm, let me say wrong yeah misguided yes <laughs> misguided <laughs> i mean you know the, the 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 challenges of um being a professional woman who'd been in ch- uh, you know responsible for a big budget and a lot of people both both staff and clients um to now be at home looking at a wee person of you know seven pound um and feeling like you know who let me be in charge of this tiny creature yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh you know huge huge um for me at least uh awakening of all the things i didn't know and all the things i thought i knew that now realized i had no idea about uh, you know to give you uh, our son's called will he didn't sleep well as a baby and um he and i went to sleep school when he was about seven months old and tim I wasn't sure that was the right idea and even as he was driving us to the uh, sleep school the hospital um thought that you know perhaps we could we could probably work it out ourselves and i should just stop reading all those books which yeah, i yeah. think plenty of dads have probably said to their, yeah. to their wife their new the new dads have said to the, their wife who's the new mum uh anyway it was just a turning point that five days was magnificent for me it was really great to feel like that support that we've been talking about that yeah, there were people yeah. who could help me that I didn't have to know it all I wasn't failing it wasn't hopeless uh, that the baby would probably be all right all those sorts of things um and you know in at the, I think for Tim it was you know a real a real dilemma to let your family go and be yeah. somewhere else and to wonder if they're okay and to want to be with them but also to want them to you know do something different and you know just a, a very big uh, complex soup of emotional and mental needs um anyway that the nurses there were fabulous and will and i came home and and second babies are much easier ellen yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but, but the, in terms of work you know those logistics and and just that self-awareness stuff having to face into what you don't know having to find the words to say uh, what you need you know that experience of vulnerability i think other than when i first started working in child protection well probably i suppose lots of firsts when I first started in child protection, you know, I used to go some to visit some families in my RM William boots and my jeans and go through the screen door and make sure I didn't shut the screen door properly in case I had to run out yeah. the front door. You know, I yeah. never would have worn heels or a skirt or anything like that there. 
So there was that in child protection. When I sat down on the first week in my job as family therapist, mm. I'd just come back from my honeymoon. I'd been married for precisely a fortnight and the first clients were coming for marriage therapy. I mean, you know, it's just yeah. crazy stuff. And, you know, in that job over the next four or five years, teaching, being a part of a group of people who taught parenting skills, you know, had no children of my yeah, own. Yeah, just yeah. all these things that we, you don't have to have experienced everything to help people in that thing. Um, but, of course, once you do do that thing, you get a whole lot of new insight into what it what it's well, like. Well. So, so let's, um, I, I, you're taking us there pretty good, actually. So you had a 10-year break where it wasn't really a break. It's probably the hardest job of your life, raising three kids. Um, <laughs> and, but, then you, and, but then you, um, you came back and you wanted to do more. So what was more? Yeah, so, um, well, there's probably something really important to talk about before we go there, and that is to say that my husband, Tim, got cancer. Okay. Um, and uh, he, we had a four-year journey uh, before he passed away. He died oh, in 2000. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I didn't know. I'm sorry. Uh, it's okay. Uh, well, it's not really okay, but, you know, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so... So when Tim first got sick, the kids were little. They were um, uh, three, five, and six. Yeah. And uh, so you know we had to review all of our all of our expectations about work and money and our family's security and all of those things. So Tim was working full time at local government. Um, he uh, when he passed away, he was the CEO of our local shire, Wellington Shire. Um, so, you know, he had a good job and we I didn't need to work. But uh, with his cancer, all of that was thrown up in the air. And so, yeah. so then I um, established my private practice as a, a counselling psychologist, initially just as a day a week and then as time went on, you know, various iterations of that, uh, then I then ran that practice for 12 or 13 years. So um, I, in some ways... I went back to work into that particular role because it was incredibly flexible and I could work as much or as little as I wanted uh, and it could be very family-friendly and if Tim Tim did go back to full-time work after his initial rounds of treatment, um, but it, it left the door open, I guess, for me to yeah. work however I wanted to work, whenever I wanted to work. Mm, okay. That's a pretty tough time. Um, and it's it just shows the, the road to... Who we're seeing today must have taken a lot of support. Must have taken a lot of must have taken a lot of harrowing days where you didn't think you had it had it in you probably. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, I'm in your hands. Where do you want to go with where, with where we're at now? <laughs> this shocking turn of events, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I that that next four years from Tim's diagnosis to when he um, passed away. Or from when he first got sick, he, we, it was several months actually before we got a clear diagnosis of what was going on. But um, you know, in that four years, I uh, was um, in the health system in a whole different way to how I'd ever been before. So we'd mm. largely been well, and we hadn't had any long-term kind of chronic experiences of of, of needing to be in healthcare. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, I was on a very steep learning curve and I think there was probably some assumptions from myself and others that because I was a healthcare professional that I understood how the healthcare system mm. worked. 
but there were many, many parts of it that I knew nothing about. And yeah. really entering into the healthcare system as a result of a cancer diagnosis in your immediate family is like arriving on another planet. So um, it's incredibly disorienting. Uh, you know, we didn't understand a lot of the language. We didn't understand what was going to happen next. Um, we didn't know a lot of the time where to find the information we needed to find. Uh, another um, great stroke of luck and privilege is that my, one of my brothers is a doctor, his mm. wife's a doctor, so they were able to help us with our orientation. I yeah. really think that families who have a medical person in their family are just so lucky. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, so, there were, you know, we could spend the whole time talking about this part, which I won't, um, mm. I won't do, but... Uh, what I saw was health professionals that were extraordinarily um, kind, caring, you know, really at the top of their game, able to meet us where we were, um, able to help us get oriented, uh, to anticipate our needs, to um, be patient with us. And we saw the, the far extreme opposite of that. So uh, particularly with doctors where they... Um, didn't have time to talk to us yeah. at the time I thought it was their choice I thought they were just rude and mm. inept um, uh, I now know probably many of them were in very different position we can talk yeah. about that in a bit yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but at the time I just found it astounding at the lack of care and compassion and, and connection that we had with some of the health professionals we met along the way and we you know I you will have gathered probably by now <laughs> that I am assertive when there's a need yes. for uh, yeah. resources and information and I have this amazing sister who also is has that skill um, and she was a terrific sidekick for me and that she did a lot of the research she would ring up uh, clinics or or get online and find out what kind of treatments were available and so on. She would do a lot of that basic research. And again, if anybody's listening who has somebody with a health concern in their family, if if you are able to act like she did as their researcher or their assistant, it's so helpful for the person who's right in the front line. Mm. So she would say to me, I think you need to ring up this naturopath or this um, herbalist or this um uh, uh, oncologist for a second opinion or this whoever and she will have done the groundwork already and so I would didn't waste any time on things dead ends so mm. um, you know a bit of teamwork went a long way and um, uh, during the course of that I really started to say there's a job here for me somewhere here yeah. I can help these people around their communication and I used to say to Tim Tim was well and unwell during that four years and Sometimes when he was well, I'd say something about cancer and he would say, I don't want to talk about cancer. Cancer's not going to be a part of my um, life. I want to get better from this thing and move on. And yeah. I just knew that it would kind of in some way always be a part of my life now that as a mm. meditation teacher, I hadn't done my formal training as a coach yet, but I'd been in those kinds of roles yeah. um, and a psychologist that I couldn't um, unsee what I'd seen. Yeah. So after Tim passed away, sometime after that, I said to one of his brothers, what about if I could coach doctors? And we just started having this conversation, loosely mm. speaking. Then I said to my brother, who's the doctor, and um, my other brother-in-law said, okay, so if you want to do something about doctors and communication, it'll probably be a piece of research. And I had this really strong 
experience inside myself of resistance. I was like, no, that's not what I'm talking about yeah, yeah, yeah. to myself. Yeah. That's not what it's going to be. Um, and I knew when I was at uni doing my undergrad that I was never going into research, that it was going to be all about applied psychology for me. Mm. So, um, yeah, so I just started talking to people. And as, as I came out of that kind of really intense first year or two of grieving the loss of Tim, and as the kids kind of settled, I just started having more and more conversations with doctors, some who had treated Tim uh, and others that I met through other means and asking them, you know, what's the training that you get for communication? How do you manage when you've got to give bad news to someone and then you walk straight into the next room and do something else with someone else? Like how do yeah, you, it's yeah. lots and lots and lots of kind of curious, what we call in, in meditation, beginner's mind questions. Mm. Uh, and the rest is history, as they say. I'm sure you're going to ask me about that, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love uh, where these interviews go because you can see, the you know, it's so clear what the catalyst was. Um, and I kind of liked what the answer was, uh, what you said before. You saw the people in the health profession kind of caring at the top of the game, patient and all the skills that we, we want to see. But then you saw the exact opposite of rude and inept people um, and you thought they were just, um, that's the way they were. But then you went to the next line about that and you said, but that was probably a, an indicator of symptoms of a lot more going on. Um, that's so true uh, in in probably any workforce, really, like uh, in PTSD, in the police or emergency services, there's some early warning signals that rude and inept would be one of them, really. Mm, totally, <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so kind of, kind of in your hands. I, I don't want to ask where, what's next. Yeah, you know, like you, you realize, like uh, yeah, the worst happens in your your husband, your life partner, the father of your children passes away, but you you have this poor belief that I can I can help these people uh, navigate this world. And you talked about doctors that have to give death messages or, you know, the, the, the operation didn't go right and then they have to jump into the next room. Mm -hmm. So how did you how did you navigate this? How did you create mm -hmm. uh, an environment where you are? You know, the person we're talking to now is a coach for doctors. Um, what did it first look like? Mm -hmm. you know, what, what, what are the first couple of examples where you made this shift? Mm -hmm. Um, well, a few things happened. I um, uh, uh, went to the Gawler Foundation. Sadly, um, the Gawler Foundation is not operating in the same way as it was. But I, uh, Tim and I, during his illness, had gone to the Gawler Foundation out at the Yarra Valley in uh, in Victoria and done some um, retreats, meditating and so on. And uh, we'd read Ian's book and learnt a lot about um I guess the non-Western medicine things that people do in response to cancer. And, uh, you know, when you're a researcher or a psychologist or a doctor who's well and isn't touched by these things, you have a very different risk profile mm. to when you're actually looking down the barrel of dying yeah, or okay. someone you love dying. Mm. So all the things that we might not have considered, you know, rigorous, scientifically-based, evidence-based kind of research now become interesting. Mm. So I had done a lot of work around meditation. I uh, went to a Gawler Foundation um, conference where this man called Rasmus Hugard was talking about um, bringing mindfulness into corporate spaces. 
and I was sitting with my friend who was an accountant and she's poking me in the leg going, this is for you, this is for you. Mm. And he said, "Is there if there's anyone here in the audience who would like to uh, join us and deliver these programs in Australia, we'd love to hear from you. Okay. It was just, you know, again, I think we really underestimate luck. <laughs> so I was yeah, in the right place yeah. at the right time. I met Rasmus. Um, I started, I went to Sydney, uh, somewhere outside of Sydney and did a six-day retreat with him and, and others learning this way of teaching mindfulness in corporate places. Um, the Potential Project is a global leader now in this work and I still um, am, am an associate or a senior trainer with them. Um, and that was huge because I had to leave my kids for six for a full week and fly somewhere and I hadn't left them for, you know, hadn't left them since Tim had died and even during yeah. that, when Tim was well, unwell, I hadn't left them for more a couple of days at a time. So my mum and dad came and were with them and uh, I kind of bit the bullet and decided I had to do this. So I went and did this retreat with an extraordinary group of humans doing this work still all around the world. Um, and then I went and formalised my coach training. So I became a, a, was a properly trained professional coach. So a lot of investment into shifting and making sure I had the right skills and understanding what we mean when we say professional coach and meditation mm. teacher and so on. And the meditation teaching um, is also, you know, really important in terms of understanding dualism, that we're interconnected, that we're not, it's not black and white, it's not either or. There's lots of grey areas in between and even both things can exist at the same time. You know, we can be very angry at the doctor for being rude to us and also really wanting them to like us at the same yeah, time. Yeah. You know? So really it deepened, I guess, my own sense of um, the world and who I could be in it and so on and learned some more things about self-leadership and discipline, self, self-care. Um, and then uh, I still had my counselling practice, so that's how I was earning money and working, but I started also doing some work for Potential Project um, and uh, some working in schools and other places, leading workshops in corporate places, and then um, just started putting out on the internet, made a website that said sheriejohnson.com.au, which is really out of date, so don't look at it if you're listening. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> look yeah, at the yeah. Coaching for Doctors website. Yeah. Um, and uh, just said that I provided coaching to doctors. And I think in that first few months I had two doctors uh, contact me cold call out of the yeah. universe in Australia, but, you know, just from seeing the website. Um, and I just really, like all novices, applied my new learning to coaching, which is, you know, coaching has a very strong philosophy of follow the process. So don't get too caught up in the content, the story that the person's telling or believing. Yeah. Um, and, a, and some other really useful things like ask, don't tell, um, you know, I think that presence is really important in listening. You know, Oscar Trimboli in Sydney is a fantastic yeah. teacher of, of how to listen. Um, I think that I just really worked hard to be present and curious. I think they were probably the two most important things. I really wanted to understand what it was like to be a doctor. Now, at the beginning, I thought that I was going to be a patient advocate you know, I really had a fire in my belly. I was really yeah. angry about some of the things that had happened and the way we'd been spoken to and yeah. the effort we'd had to go to to find care. You know, at one stage, Tim was in a big tertiary uh, hospital, you know, two people in the room. And the man in the other bed was a Vietnamese man who couldn't speak English very much. And he would call out, sister, sister, sister. 
and it might be an hour before a nurse would come to him. And yeah. sometimes I would go and find the nurse for him. It was really distressing. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't, you know, just really had a fire in my belly that these mm. patients, and I, and I, in that time I learned that the research is very clear that um, patients who perceive their doctor to be empathic uh, receive much better care they have much better health outcomes. They report their experience in healthcare to be much better. Um, they sue the doctor less often. Um, and that doctors who are well actually provide better care. If Most doctors that I've met want to provide what they refer to as optimal care. Yeah. Um, they actually can't provide optimal care, and probably nobody can every single time. But really they can only provide suboptimal care if they're not well themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, you know, with with learning that there was clear research to demonstrate that if the doctor's well, the patient has a better health outcome. You know, that's it for me, really. Like yeah. in, instead of working with patient after patient after patient with terrible stories of what yeah. happened to them in healthcare, I could go and work with the doctors, and it would be a systemic response. And every doctor that sees thousands of patients could potentially do better, feel better and have yeah. better outcomes for the patient. I mean, it just didn't seem like there was any loss. It was win, no. win, 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 yeah. win, win. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to, um, I mean, I, I, I can see where this is going and and, you, and you've written this beautiful book called The Thriving Doctor. Um, do you want to give a, some early examples, um, an early win, say, uh, where, you know, you, you started this fledgling business, you, you're a qualified coach, you're qualified in meditation, um you had a new website coaching for doctors and you had two people cold called you um in that first two you know six months two years is there a is there a, a story that put a fire in your belly to continue doing this mm, so many <laughs> huh. um oh, hard to know where to start um Oh, there's some themes with the doctors. So, um, uh, and a lot of what I do is what I would have done in my cycling, my, it's not my cycling, my psychology oh. counselling yeah, <laughs> business, yeah, yeah. Um, which is around reframing. So, you know, people tell a story, a doctor will tell a story that, you know, um, uh, I, I don't go to the toilet when I go to work. You know, I go to work for 10 hours and I don't go to the toilet. Mm. You know, simple story. I say, what do you mean? Are yeah. you having a drink? Have you had a drink in that 10 hours? Oh, you're just a, a sip, a couple of sips, not, yeah. not too many. Okay, so what's your state of health after, oh, I'm terrible, I'm stuffed, I'm, you know, I'm dehydrated, I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other. So what would happen if you could you run an experiment now accounting uh, coaching is often about having an accountability partner mm. so they feel like they need to come back and tell the coach yeah. that they've achieved or tried out something of so that doctor will go away have a couple of drinks maybe even leave the floor to go to the toilet um, and come back and say actually nothing bad happened it's okay yeah. <laughs> Um, but bigger things like um, I've got to move my. I'm in. I'm in the final year of my training. I've been training to be a, this kind of specialist for 15 years, and now I have to move my family to a regional centre hospital for six months to fit, complete my training. And I feel mm. so guilty about what that's doing to my family. 
um, and, you know, f talking about that and finding, you know, helping shift that limiting belief and notice that the family actually want you to finish you know? yeah, yeah. and the family have supported you for all these years so they'll probably support you for this bit too what do you need so that you can allow them to come yeah. on this journey with you um or you know i've i've been training for all this time and now i'm finally a consultant and actually i don't like it but i can't stop because what will my mum and dad say yeah um you know all sorts of things like that or i've had an i've had an adverse event um you know a, a baby died that's mm. the perhaps the worst one um and i just i don't know if i want to go back to work yeah okay let's talk about that it's different coaching is different to counseling mm. uh it's very forward focused it's very um goal oriented uh it's very much about what do you need in in the service of your goals mm. or what is this goal serving how did you come to form this goal? What is it that you hope to achieve out of that? Um, um, does this expectation that you have align with actually your values? Yeah. What value are you trying to live in this decision? Um, so they can be quite kind of practical and easy to resolve sort of thing, reframes, or they can yep. be really very deep to the core of the person's identity. Yeah, okay. Um, the success is when the doctor feels like they can move forward in some way. And that might be, an, again, practical. Right, this is the kind of training program I'm going to apply for or this is the promotion or whatever. Or, or they can be quite small, like, oh, now that I can think of crying as honouring that experience instead of I'm a bad doctor, Yeah. I've, I'm really, you know, I feel... I'm back in my own skin. I feel grounded. I, I don't feel so anxious. I feel a bit lighter. I want to go and see my patients again tomorrow. So, you know, it can be really profound. Yeah, yeah. Or it can be, you know, just kind of the next step. Yeah. I think it's um, like all of us have been to a doctor and you, and when I, I, I look at the process, maybe it's 15 to 20 minutes each, sesh, each session and they've got to be on their game with each patient and make that connection and figure out what could be a life-threatening issue and they do that as you say for 10 hours a day at least um it's a huge grind so uh, it's kind of reassuring to know that there's someone like you out there offering a level of support to them so um what's it look like you know once Maybe we're getting a bit close to the the time where you've got to go, but um, is there an example of uh, like some some of the things I've read in your book? These people think it's a system problem. You now the doctors think it's a system problem, and they're and they're really struggling uh, with the overload of it. Uh, have you got a story where someone's really struggling? Their their health, their physical fitness is poor. Their mental health is is disintegrating. And they they feel overburdened. Have have you got a story mm. that you can share us with us that that ended? Mm, I'm, a, I, a I, I, I'm a bit reluctant to share any specific story. I can kind mm. of share a bit of an amalgam or something because I, yes, obviously yep. confidentiality is the most important, precious part of the work yeah. that I do. Um, I think a, a doctor that's actually literally you know crumbling in some way needs to go to counselling and needs to stop work for a while. So that doctor. I would refer and try and work with until they 
got the support that they had, but it wouldn't be coaching that, that they yeah. did have. Yeah. Um, the doctor who's saying, um, you know, I've lost my way. I don't know if I, I don't love medicine anymore. It's too hard to do if I if I don't enjoy it or see any reason in doing it. Uh, you know, I kind of feel like, is this all there is? Mm. Um, which I think, you know, not only doctors, most adult workers yeah, probably yeah, have yeah. that experience at some yeah. stage in their life. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that doctor who's exhausted, who um, is, has lost this kind of sense of meaning or their connection to the meaning that brought them to medicine in the first place, um, who uh, is has perhaps had some feedback that they are speaking unkindly to the nurses or who are that they're, uh, you know, not being a team player in some way, uh, who's feeling undermined or has had a complaint to the registration body, to APRA from a patient. Um, those doctors really welcome coming to coaching, which is a safe space, high trust, high candour, in no way threatening to their reputation outside of their hierarchy. Um, uh, there's not going to be a complaint made about them saying out loud the difficulties of what yeah. they're doing and having. Um, who can get back in touch with what are they doing with their life in the same way as any other human adult might. Mm. You know, that, that, that's... That's kind of where the magic happens. You know, coaching is really founded in positive psychology and um, this idea that we are autonomous, that we want to achieve in our own lives, we want to make relationship and have good relationships. Um, what do they call that? The, the, the theory of self? Self-determination. Yes, yes, yeah. My, yeah. my daughter's a psych. So, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, so you know, that's that's really where it's at, you know. That the doctor comes in, they are safe. They can recognise themselves, find their refine their own identity, their own self, recognise their more than their role, um, and then work out how they want to express it. I think these these people. I don't want to kind of make a stereotype, really, but people who become doctors work under extraordinary pressure uh, most of the time. There would be some uh, poking in between the medical, the different crafts about who has the most pressure but um, you know they're working under extraordinary pressure they have very high expectations of themselves they are um, you know, striving for perfection they've been held up as you know shining lights in terms of intelligence from their high school years um, often their families have made great sacrifices to support them to be doing the work the training you know like different to other careers they train for such a long time yeah. um, and 50 to 60% of them report in any given moment symptoms of burnout. So, you know, I mean, the system's not working. So the system, they are right to point at the system and say there are systemic problems. There are significant systemic problems. But my answer to that is people create systems and people can dismantle them. So, you know, for every doctor, are you enabling or disabling this ineffective system that you're describing, you know, um, 
in the last 12 months we've seen, or maybe it's notes in the last couple of years, junior doctors come together and make a, you know, a test case at court about the hours that they're yeah, working. Yeah, well, no yeah. individual doctor could have done that. They had to come together and find a way to do that collectively. Yeah. And I think that that's often what coaching does. It helps doctors think about how can I behave differently, speak differently, how can I articulate this issue in a wider context to, to make change? So whilst coaching often looks like an individual act, it, hop, it happens in the context of a wider system. It's cognizant of the wider system. Um, and, you know, it's only people who are going to change any given system. I think uh, you know that from your work. Yeah, yeah. Um, you asked me before the before this interview started um, about my book. Um, I only have two quotes in my book. One's from Peter Scott, the, the submarine yes. guy, um, but the other one's from Margaret Mead. Um, yes. Um, what is it? Uh, a group of committed people can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. Um, so Love I use yeah, it's a, yeah. the best quote ever. Oh, um, so you just you just kind of nailed it with that. Look. I love talking to someone like you, you're so kind and so educated and you're so con and people like you, you can just tell with someone like yourself, you're so considered in what you say. Um, and it's kind of it's just wonderful to listen to. So I'm conscious of where we're at. So you end up writing a book, you know, like yep. you, you, you turn you turn your coaching for doctors business into a the thriving doctor book. Um, so what did you learn about yourself writing The Thriving Doctor? Mm. Gosh, writing a book is an extraordinary feat. <laughs> uh, congratulations to us both for, <laughs> for making that happen and to our lovely coach, Kelly. Um, I think that uh, I, I learnt that anything worth doing requires effort. <laughs> Again, I learned that again. Um, I, you know, the middle is the hardest bit. I was talking with a doctor yesterday who said the middle of the messy middle of the shift is the hardest bit, and I really felt like that when she said it about my book. I've got this quote here from Nelson Mandela: "It always seems impossible until it's done," yeah. and I really hung on to that while I was writing my book. I think it was a gift to be in COVID because I had this space to write a book. I, I think if I was ordinarily in the ordinary cut and thrust of work, I probably still wouldn't have written a book. But because yeah. there was this uh, forced space and because I found Kelly, I think without the book coach, I wouldn't have um, perhaps got there. Um, but I really learned that, you know, persistence is just such an important quality when you believe in something and you do have to believe in it to persist. These two mm. things probably come hand in hand. So I remember... Um, saying to my parents in the kind of, I suppose I was two-thirds of the way in with the book and uh, it was one of those little windows in COVID where they were here visiting. We hadn't seen each other for six months or whatever. Um, and I was up early every morning. The kids were getting up uh, as, you know, late high, middle, late high school age kids yeah. Yeah. and they would get up, at, you know, late, nine or 10 or 11. So I was kind of capturing that time from five in the morning to write and they would get up and I'd be at the kitchen table hammering away on my um, laptop yeah. and say, you know, what are you doing? I'd say, writing my book, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> these things never got an end. Um, and uh, saying to my parents at that time, I feel like I'm in a pit with three or four bears wrestling them and I just actually don't know, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. It's just a full-on wrestle every time because I had got most of the content down but I didn't, 
I couldn't refine it. I was in the place where I couldn't see the wood from the trees. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when I gave the book to the editors, there was one chapter in particular that was just so long and laborious. And I, even when I was reading, I was just could not kind of, what is the point? What am I trying to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I said to the editors, um, you know, I can't see the wood for the trees anymore. There were two editors. I'll, I'll pretty much accept everything you say. I'm standing yeah. here saying I want your feedback. You're going to make it better than I can make it now. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I'll I'll accept most of what you say, and I and they took out twenty five thousand words, and okay. they needed they needed to, and I was just I'm still very very grateful to them for doing that, and the book is so much better for that. So, another example of teamwork and feedback and support and you know, but also persistence and and believing in the reason. It, if if I didn't have a clear belief that what we you know writing the book is trying to scale what we're doing. I can't talk to every doctor in the world and I don't want to. Yeah. Um, you know, there are lots more coaches uh, in training f to work with doctors and I endorse that and we hope to bring some of them into our system and support them to find clients and, and deliver more coaching to more doctors. So I don't want to own that space that I'm the only coach in the world by any yeah. means. But I do want doctors to have an easy, ready access to a resource that helps them understand how coaching works and how it might help and that there are lots and lots of things that they can be doing even in what might be called a dysfunctional system yes. to help them do well and be well. And, I, you know, the core message of the book really is look after yourself first. And in medicine, the, the, um, the, the uh, analogy that, is used in lots of industries is put your own oxygen mask on first yes but doctors will often say the system that's all well and good but the system doesn't let me do that i don't believe that i think that we have to be responsible in the very first inst instance for our own behavior for our own self and that if we don't call out systems and if we don't say i'm not going to do that nothing changes yeah. The challenge for doctors is they say, but if I say I don't do, I'm not going to do that. Somebody might die, and so you know, there's there's very high stakes or these yeah. stories, these beliefs yeah. um, that you know there's nothing I can do. I just have to kind of suck up this kind of wild system that doesn't care about me. Yeah. I I just don't think that's true. Even if that's been true until right now to this moment, it doesn't have to be true. Going no, question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's your interview, so I, I totally agree with you. I can, I can think of a number of examples, but um, I, I, I don't want to get off point. I, I totally agree with what you say. It's um, that's where the coaching comes into it. Mm. If um, they don't, the 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 doctor that you're describing doesn't have to do it all. There's someone they can share the load. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's really um, I can see where you're coming from. And they're going to need to share the load, Alan. The workforce uh, shortages across health across the world are, you know, pretty frightening, really. Yes. We are going yeah. to have to do health differently to how we've been doing it. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I, I hope that COVID is providing a catalyst for some of those changes. Um, already we have reverted in some ways to the old things that okay. perhaps we don't want to. Uh, so, you know, I guess we're in a state of transition, a state of flux, and I just hope we can kind of hold our awareness. There's so much more talk in healthcare now about wellbeing of health professionals, which Good. is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, your comment before about all first-line workers and emergency services, um, I've had uh, just incredible feedback from people about the book from all healthcare professionals, paramedics, nurses, 
wow. all sorts of people um, and a surprising and not surprising group teachers many many teachers who have read the book who've said this applies exactly to me um, James Samana who works in Canberra in the public service um, ha has uh, said this book is just about people who work under pressure anybody who works under pressure can have value in this book so you know that's all just you know I feel very humbled and grateful for all that feedback and I, I guess it comes to that core, my core ex expertise as a psychologist, coach and, and meditation teacher that I really believe in personal agency and with the right support, um, you know, we can do better, we can um, do well for and by each other but we've really got to look after ourselves first, not in that selfish way, actually in self-compassion and um for long-term sustainability. Beautiful, beautiful, Cherie. I think you probably answered the last question I was going to ask you um, about um, what do you want the reader to take away. So I, th I think that line, you, I, I, I'm going to go to this um, to summarise the interview with this section of the, your interview now. Um, anybody who works under pressure should read the book. <laughs> Is, <laughs> would you, was that what was that what you? I would think say? that's what James. That's what James Samana says. Um, yeah, I mean, I I hope that. Really, anybody who wants to take good care of themselves so that they can bring their, you know, it's a bit cliche, but kind of bring their best self, their best self or bring bring themselves, even not even their entirely best self, but just bring themselves to the table. You know, we all do better in each other's company um, because we are social animals and we, and we do better in each other's company when we're well. And that's not somebody else's business. That's our own business to be well. Wow. You know, really you know, simple things like get enough sleep, yeah, <laughs> which is hard in our world. That's a good, simple answer. Um, this this is the last question. So, okay. uh, <laughs> so you're clearly excelled any hope um, that I had for this interview to, to where you would take us. It's, I just love your quiet, considered educated but simple way of viewing the world um say someone was listening to this interview today because uh, they, they, they i can't believe where they listen to it it's all over the world um uh if someone wanted to 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 start out on or or divert their their current life to what sheree johnson does and replicate uh something that in what what would your three key takeaways advice be to them um mm. to to become someone who supports and coaches other people so that their well-being is there is their you know in your words putting their own oxygen mask on first mm. um so number one to put to look after yourself first look after yourself like i'll give you 10 things so i won't just whatever that means for you and we've all got room for improvement so whether it's get your own coach, have some more sleep, drink more water, go for a walk, look after yourself. That's primary. Um, second, be curious. You know, I walked around in my life for too long thinking I knew what I needed to know. So be curious. Uh, I, I am where I am because I keep asking questions and making space, pausing, being quiet. You wouldn't believe it since I've done most of the talking today. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what the interview is about. <laughs> but being quiet enough to listen, 
um, you know, sometimes we ask a question and then we just don't leave enough space for the person to think and answer. So be curious. Um, and, you know, the the scientist and the, you know, I do just, I really believe in education. I think if you want to be a coach in the world, you know, do the work, get credentialed. Anyone can call themselves a coach. It's an unregulated industry. Um, but I'm invested in making sure that other coaches who I work with know what that means, that have the skills to do that. If I refer you to a coach, I want to know that they are delivering what I think they're delivering. Yeah. So, um, you know, do the work. It's If you want to be a mentor or a guide or a big brother or a, a best friend or, you know, great, do all that. But if you're going to call yourself a coach, professional coach, do the work so that you actually are delivering, you know, something that we collectively understand. Okay, beautiful. Um, we're just we're, we're we're there. We're at the end of the interview. And I love those three. Uh, like, look after yourself, be curious, and be educated. Do the work. Um, where do people buy your book, or this, yep. where 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 yep. can they access your book? So, coachingfordoctors.net.au is our website. You can just click on the Thriving Doctor and buy the book there. The, that page will also send you to links at Amazon and Booktopia and so on. So. Uh, if you want to buy the book online, that's how you can do it. If you want to buy bulk order, we've had a number of medical schools and uh, hospitals and so on buy uh, bulk orders of the books for their uh, interns or for the, for Christmas or whatever. Uh, you can send me an email at sheree at coachingfordoctors.net.au um, and we'll talk with you about that. Uh, you can really get the book through any bookshop, but they won't have it on the shelf necessarily. They might have to order it for you because we're not through, you know, one of the main um, publishing houses um, and if you want to talk with me about coaching or uh, with our, our group programs or any of the things we do it's all there on the website coaching for doctors I might just uh, I, I promised that was the last question but you, <laughs> but you just kind of opened the door to something I was thinking about um, uh, group programs you said so does that mean you have a group of doctors that support each other mm. by the group <laughs> Yeah, we have a program called Recalibrate that we run. It's an immersive learning program. It's uh, essentially about intra and interpersonal skills. So um, what doctors refer to as the non-clinical skills, I've got a bit of an aversion to that because I think that these skills make them better clinicians. So yeah. I don't really like calling them the non-clinical skills, but if there's any doctors listening, that's what we're doing. Um, so we meet uh, in groups of 10 or 12 doctors, on some online, some some programs are online, some are live in person uh, over several months. So those doctors all have one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, but we also meet in, in a group and do some work around unconscious bias, compassion, mindfulness, uh, emotions, communication, preventing burnout and building leadership. Um, and then we have an alumni community. So the people who've graduated from Recalibrate are able to then choose. They don't all, about 70 or 80% of people come into the alumni community, but uh, that's it's a choice that people make after they've done that that foundation program. Beautiful. Um, you are such. I've really enjoyed this interview. You just have. Um, I, I can't wait to meet you in person one day. Actually, yes, so uh, uh, you have just a way about you that I can see. Um, I probably thank you from the from the community that listens to the podcast. Uh, it's reassuring to know that our doctors have someone like you um, in their camp to look after them.
Um, mm. So thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, very and, welcome. Uh, and that concludes our interview today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Alan. Thank you. Well, how good was that? Cherie Johnson really is a wonderful person who has a very mindful and considerable way of approaching life and approaching the improvement of the people most crucial to our health and well-being, our doctors, our medical, our medical teams. Through the interview we've just listened to, I'll leave you with some of the, the, the key messages of Shari's um, books, her business and the interview. Cherie says that you have to believe to persist. We all do better in each other's company and we all do better in each other's company when we are well. Look after yourself first. We all have room for improvement in our well-being. And these final three things about leadership that Cherie left us with. Be curious. Keep asking questions. Be quiet enough to listen so you actually hear what people have to tell you. And be educated. Do the work yourself so you are delivering something we all collectively understand. Anyone who works under pressure will get the benefits from the book, The Thriving Doctor. And if you want to order a copy or find out more about Cherie Johnson, her website, coachingfordoctors.net.au, is where you can find her. And if you want to order bulk orders directly through Cherie Johnson, go to her website and go to the shop in that website. Thank you again for listening. Until next time, I'm sure you'll enjoy our next guest. <music>